Chapter 12 Season 3 All of the Hondas and Toyotas turned into Mercedes and BMWs. The cast and crew of The Office went into the third season riding an incredible high. They'd just won an Emmy for Outstanding Comedy Series. NBC had finally given them a full season pickup of 22 episodes. Much of the cast had gotten a raise, and all of the agonizing battles of the past were behind them. Jason Kessler When we came back for the third season, you started seeing new cars in the parking lot. Matt Son. All of the Hondas and Toyotas turned into Mercedes and BMWs. Randall Einhorn. Craft services in season one and two was like sausage links, a bunch of deviled eggs, and some sandwiches. By season three, I'd be sitting there with a 40-pound camera on my shoulders, and this guy would walk up to me and say, Crab-stuffed mushroom? Kim Ferry. It was so exciting. You definitely felt like you had job security. Finally. It's not like, I'm going to have to go on unemployment. I'm going to have to start looking for work. I'm going to have a job for a whole year. This is great. People started buying houses. Kate Flannery. I met my boyfriend at the end of season two. He came to my Lampshades sketch comedy show, and he asked me out after that. And so we actually dated between season two and three. So when I came back, season three, I was like, oh my God, I'm over 40. I'm a female in LA. I have a boyfriend and I got a show. This is nuts. It was just this wonderful new reality. Larry Wilmore. Season three felt more like a regular sitcom. That feeling of guerrilla filming and being a renegade and all that was long in the rear view. Brent Forrester, writer, seasons three through nine. The pressure came off them significantly after that second season. I kind of felt like the troops had won their victory. Ken Whittingham. Things started to feel a little different by season three because from time to time there might be a little pushback on certain things from the actors in ways they wouldn't before. They'd start saying to me, well, I don't know if my character would do that. Jen Salata. As we became more successful and potentially had more money for things, every department wanted to do a better job. Lighting wanted cooler lightings, wardrobe wanted better clothes. Everybody wanted cooler, neater things. But that just puts a wall up between you and the character when everybody's just starting to look a little bit too, like, perfectly put together. There were certain things that really helped people connect to the characters, I think, like the blandness of the office, the grays, the lighting. Everything really helped that. Carrie Bennett. Ricky Gervais came to set at this point. He said, hey, so how's it going for you? And I'm like, you know what? I'm just holding the line. I'm trying, but everybody wants to be fancy. They all want this fancy stuff. They want to be in fancier, cuter outfits. And I'm trying to hold the line. And he said, oh man, tell me about it. After the first season of the UK show, everybody came back and their teeth were whitened and they had tans. The season begins with Gay Witch Hunt, where Michael learns that Oscar is gay and tells the entire office about it. Oscar Nunez. Greg Daniels wrote that script and he was very concerned about it. He said, 
do you mind if we make your character gay? And I said, no, I don't care. And he said, oh, good, because we wrote this script. What would you have said if I was crazy and had said no? But it was a great, great script. The episode climaxes in a conference room scene where Michael forcibly kisses Oscar to somehow prove that he's comfortable with homosexuality. Oscar Nunez. We kept doing the scene over and over again, and we kept hugging and we kept hugging. I guess Steve felt something was missing, and he was right. It was a nothing scene. Michael should have been more awkward or aggressive, and so maybe the fourth or fifth take, he's coming in for the hug, but he's not diverting his face. His face is coming toward me, and I'm like, he better go left or right because we're going to smash faces. Where is he going? Where is he going? Oh, no, this is happening now. And we kissed. As they say, the rest is history. Jen Salata. That kiss was not scripted, and it was one of the best moments in the series, I think. Steve leaned in to hug him, and then he just went for the kiss. Thank God Oscar is a genius and he had improv training and he didn't break. But we had to work to find a reaction where everyone wasn't breaking because this was not supposed to happen. Brian Whittle, boom operator. I'm six feet away from them booming the scene and I remember thinking, he's going to kiss him. He's going to kiss him. Randall Einhorn. It just kept going and going and nobody pulled out. Oscar wasn't going to pull out. Steve certainly didn't. We all knew that it was just genius. Oscar Nunez. I remember thinking, I hope they get this take because I don't want to do it over again. And I knew the reactions were awesome. There was laughter, which was totally normal. It was very funny. Kate Flannery. That was improvised, and it was nuts. I was like, don't anybody fuck this up. Don't anybody speak over this. Don't let anybody get in the way. Let it happen. It was so great, so wonderful. Ken Quapis. Once the kiss ends, Steve ad-libbed a line. Under his breath, he goes, See? I'm still here. That was not in the script. It's just this strange idea in some fairy tale that he was going to what? Kiss Oscar and turn into a frog? I thought that was such a wonderfully perfect Michael Scott head-scratching observation. And it's very appropriate that it takes place in that conference room. It's almost like that room is like the crucible where all of the interpersonal dramas within the office come to a boil. In that same episode, the world of the office grew with the introduction of the Stamford branch of Dunder Mifflin. This was a mirror of the second season of the UK office, where the Slough branch of Wernham Hogg absorbed the Swindon branch. Jim transferred to Stamford after Pam rejected him at the end of season two. Caroline Williams. Opening that other office was a real left turn, something unexpected. There was nothing really like that on the British show, though by this point we'd really diverged from that. But the Stamford branch was also an opportunity really to do something completely different. Also, I think Stanford was brought up as somewhere that would be a little bit more sophisticated than Scranton. Suddenly, the office feels smaller than it already was. Ken Quapis. I remember talking to Greg about wanting to make sure that on some level, Jim feels out of place in Stanford. 
that there's an adjustment required, a learning curve. It's not quite as homey as it was in Scranton. Clearly, it's a branch that's very professional. It's totally different than Scranton. You wanted to really show that this is a place that actually functions like an actual office. We built the set in our warehouse. Brent Forrester Once that Stamford office was created, of course you get to cast a whole bunch of new people and hope to create some more lasting stars. The first one they hired was Ed Helms. Like Steve Carell, he came from an improv background and first got widespread recognition as a correspondent on The Daily Show. Terry Weinberg We'd always been huge fans of Ed, and it was just a time to open up our cast, to bring in someone who was crazy talented that had something really fun to offer to the relationships on the show. Justin Spitzer Ed Helms was someone that I think Allison Jones had been suggesting for a while that the show use. We were all familiar with him from The Daily Show. Allison Jones I think it was probably Greg's idea. Greg probably said to me, Do you think Ed Helms would be good in the show? And I'm sure I said, Absolutely, he'd be great. Brian Whittle I remember Ed being the new guy and watching him. We're all trying to figure out, is he going to be around for a while? He was really funny and really nice. Everyone knew him from The Daily Show. He just gelled right away. He had the right sense of humor and the right attitude. He was a perfect choice for an addition to the show. It was like in the early Saturday Night Live when they added Bill Murray in the second season and then he became this huge star, but he wasn't a member of the original cast. Randall Einhorn as soon as he came, we knew this guy was going to fit right in here. Creed Bratton. I just think his arrival boosted everything up. It just gave it a jolt of energy because he's a wild card. I mean that in the best possible way. He's like a live wire. I can't see anybody else pulling it off as well as he did. Ed Helms. For my part, it was very daunting because I was already a big fan of the show. I was very anxious. I was very excited because I loved the show, but I was very nervous because I didn't know how I'd fit into that kind of vibe. Very early on, I was opening up to John Krasinski about my anxiety, and he was like, Dude, we're all here to support you. We're a basket, and you can feel like you can nestle into it. It actually was such a nice sentiment, and it was so genuine, and it totally put me at ease. Caroline Williams. My memory of creating the Andrew Bernard character is that Michael Schur had a friend who would introduce himself by saying his name followed by his hometown. So it was like, Joe Schmo, Chicago, Illinois. And this person was somebody that some of the other staff knew, and it had a real comical resonance with them. And so it became, okay, this guy is going to be like Andy Bernard. He's going to be that guy. There was also a running joke in the staff about where people went to college. College was a big topic of conversation in the writer's room. There was something about Cornell that pre-existed Andy Bernard, mostly coming from Michael Schur. Justin Spitzer I'm pretty sure Mike Schur was the one who came up with the idea that Andy went to Cornell, and he's always bragging about having gone to Cornell. That probably had something to do with the fact that so many of the staff went to Harvard. Gene Stupnitsky.
I remember during lunch once we went back to our offices, and I was reading that Cornell is the black sheep of the Ivy League. Lee Eisenberg People that went there are very insecure about that. Gene Stupnitsky I didn't know that, but I thought, hey, that is hilarious. Let's make Ed go to Cornell. And he's really proud of it and insecure about it and shoves it down everyone's throat in Scranton. Ken Quapis. His energy at first was making up for the fact that Dwight wasn't sitting across from Jim once he moved to Stanford. Clearly Andy was his own character, but there was a little sense that he was functioning in a way the way Dwight did as well. Caroline Williams. Andy was also a counterpoint to Dwight, because Dwight's rage was much more expressed, and Andy's was sort of withheld. They're totally different. Andy, as the kind of Dwight of the other office, his mask was just so chipper. That's a reason to kind of love him. Gene Stupnitsky. Ed can sing, so we had the characters sing. And Ed played the banjo, so Andy played the banjo. Ed Helms. Andy was just an amalgam of people that have annoyed me over the years. I tried to do a sort of armchair psychoanalysis of those people and then take that analysis and insert them into Andy. It's incredibly fun to play someone that you don't like. It exercises your own demons in a way. It's cathartic. We all have things that we don't like about ourselves, little things, and I get to amplify those things and put them out there. It's fun, and it has a cleansing effect. Lee Eisenberg Ed brought such bluster to the character. That sort of energy didn't exist before he came on. He's a cocky nerd, but so different from Dwight. He was also bragging about all the wrong things. We had a thing where he's like, I worked at Wells Fargo. He worked at all the places that have gone down. He worked at Enron. You realize he's a fool. Gene Stupnitsky I remember that one time Mike Schur ordered tuna for lunch twice in a row and someone was like, tuna? That went into the character. Jason Kessler I think Andy is very much like Michael in that he's always looking for a group to belong to. He's constantly looking for love, either romantic love or social love. I think that's why he was in an a cappella group. I think that's why he's in sales. And Ed brought so much sensitivity to the character that maybe you wouldn't get if it was just played as a preppy douchebag. There's a big difference between Andy Bernard and Bradley Whitford's character in Revenge of the Nerds, too. They're both the polo shirt frat guy, but the sensitivity that Ed brings to Andy and the sensitivity that's inherent in the character pushes out the dickishness and gives you a real person that you can care for and want to see succeed even when they are just over the top in terms of who they are as a person. The separation of Jim from the rest of the office was disconcerting for the cast and crew. B.J. Novak. It was tough to write for because it wasn't the energy of the whole gang together. It was smart story-wise, and we got to introduce some great people in Rashida and Ed and were better for it, but it was hard not having Jim in the office. Rain Wilson. We never saw John. There were like eight episodes where John would just come in on days when we weren't there. It was very interesting being in the office without John there. Leslie David Baker. The whole dynamic changes. 
Rain Wilson. It really did, and it suffered because his energy playing off people and being the straight man in the office is so important. Rashida Jones's character of Karen Filippelli was also introduced at the beginning of season three. She also worked at the Stanford branch and took an immediate liking to Jim. Allison Jones. We auditioned a lot of people for that. Laura Benanti was up for it, as I recall. I thought they were all too pretty, kind of, to be on it. But then everybody said, no, all these women can be plain, too. So it was like, okay, fine. But Rashida was the best. Greg Daniels. When we were looking for Karen and I saw Rashida's name on the audition list, I thought, this is a friend of people who work here, so... Let's be nice, but it's just not going to be her. But the thing that's great about her is that she's very beautiful, but doesn't seem aware of her beauty. She leads with her intelligence, and she felt like a good contrast to Pam. When she read scenes with Jenna, that's when we said, this is cool. Brent Forrester. The writing staff was so enamored and proud of the cast that it was always a test to see if an incoming actor could remain. It was taken very, very seriously. Rashida did not just get a free pass at first. In fact, I think even after they shot a couple of episodes with her, there was still this idea of, we could recast her if she isn't up to par. It was taken really, really seriously. But she quite correctly survived and then rose to the level of the cast because she's just unforgettable. Caroline Williams a big part of bringing on Rashida Jones was bringing in someone for Pam to feel threatened by, and she was the opposite of Pam in every way. Rashida Jones, Karen Filippelli, Seasons 3 through 5 and 7. The first day on set, I was terrified. I kept saying to Ed Helms I felt like I had won some radio contest, and they had thrown me into my favorite show. How is this possible? What am I going to do? Ken Quapis. What's nice about Rashida is just her energy. She completely fits within the world of the show, and yet her energy is very different than Jenna's. Right away, there was just a nice contrast in energy between the two women in Jim's life. This is a strange way to put it, but I feel like Pam always feels very Midwestern to me, and Rashida's character always feels like she comes from the coast. And as soon as we meet Rashida, we think... Oh my gosh, this is going to pull him further away from Pam. Caroline Williams. The idea for Karen was definitely not to make her negative. We wanted the audience to love her, so there was genuinely a sense of being torn between Pam and Karen. It would have been really easy to bring in somebody that was dumb or annoying or just really antagonistic or evil in some way that maybe Jim didn't know. But there would be no threat and the audience wouldn't be torn. We wanted her to be genuinely likable because the audience is going to hate anyone in her position because they loved Pam so much. The audience is going to be inclined to root against this person. And that was the challenge, to make people root for her so that there was real tension. And then by the end of the season, it's like you almost feel bad for her when you see her eyes, when Jim and Pam are being goofy together and she seems hurt. You're surprised in yourself that you're caring about the person who would come between them. Jean Stupnitsky. 
We knew we had to do something with Jim and Pam in the third season, but we were always talking about shows like Cheers or Moonlighting. How do you keep them apart? One way is to physically keep them apart. The first way we did that was by creating the Stamford branch and introducing this Karen Filippelli character who was basically an ideal fit for Jim to forget Pam. We thought it would give the audience a lot of angst. And it did. Rashida Jones I had anxiety before the show aired because I just didn't know how people were going to respond to me. I was afraid I was going to go out and people were going to launch eggs at my face and just not be psyched about me. I was a huge fan of the show before I was on it, and I was rooting for Pam and Jim. It put me in a weird position, but because the writers are so good, they made me likable. They did a really good job of making it confusing for viewers, too, I think. I knew that people were Pam-Jim loyalists, and I never expected to be able to break that. The fact that anyone was rooting for me at all made me so happy. Caroline Williams. At the end of Phyllis's wedding, Karen sings, and part of that was because Rashida Jones is a great singer, but it was also to kind of make her even more threatening. Not only is she ambitious and kind of excels at things that Pam doesn't, she's also good with stuff that Pam does, like kind of being a free spirit. So that kind of ups the stakes as well. It's like, oh, she's also fun. After seven episodes where Jim lives in Stanford and begins dating Karen, the two offices merge when the Stanford branch closes and many of the employees there move to Scranton. Kate Flannery We weren't there all day every day for a while during the Stanford period, which made me nervous. I was like, oh my God, is the whole storyline going to go to Stanford? Then when they merged, it was like, oh my God, this is crazy. I thought it was so ballsy for them to create that other office so soon. I thought it was totally in the spirit of a documentary to explore an idea much bigger right away, sooner than later. So that was kind of fantastic. Lee Eisenberg I think that the Stamford storyline is the type of thing where you try to mine as much as you can out of something without making it tired. I think if it was the entire season, people would miss the Scranton stories. You want the core of the office together. You want to see Michael and Jim together. Brent Forrester It was always the intention to bring Jim back to Scranton. I was really excited that they handed me the episode to write where Andy and Dwight would meet for the first time, the merger. Seeing the two offices finally come together was the thrill of it for me, comboing up characters that had never been comboed on the show yet. In particular, Andy Bernard and Dwight. I was like... Oh, that's going to be a great combo. Caroline Williams Greg had a very good plan for merging the offices together. He knew what he wanted to do. I always wanted Jim to come back, and I always wanted it to be as quick as possible. For me, the office was Jim and Pam, and I wanted them reunited. I don't remember if everyone else felt the same. Greg had his plan for just how much he could push the audience to the point where we wouldn't lose them. Obviously, the longer they were gone, the more tension would build, and that helped storytelling. But you also don't want to alienate the audience by having them check out, because so many of our favorite people aren't together. So I remember wanting Jim back and being very concerned that it was going on too long. But then ultimately, watching the season, it was the perfect amount of time. 
Ken Whittingham. I directed The Merger. I remember Greg saying to me, where do you think the new people would sit? It took about half an hour or so to kind of just figure it out, and then I gave him kind of a new layout of the office. He was like, why? So I kind of broke down the relationships, who would be actually looking at who and how that would play, and where Jenna and John would be and how it would impact their relationship. I had a reason for why everyone sat everywhere. Caroline Williams The separation forced Jim and Pam's relationship back, which was good. I remember a lot of conversations with Greg about keeping them apart, because all the audience wants is for them to be together and have a happy ending, and that is just the death of storytelling. So he was so good at protecting that tension, but not giving in to what the audience wants. It's a fine line between making the audience happy, but keeping the story going and keeping it exciting and interesting. If they had followed what the message boards were saying, Jim and Pam would have been together from the beginning. And then what? Where does it go from there? Because they were the heart of the show. Jim and Karen are dating by the time they move to Scranton. And when Pam breaks up with Roy for good in episode 17, Cocktails, their situation from season two reverses, and she becomes the lonely single pining after him. Caroline Williams It was a really tumultuous year for Pam, because before she got to be the object of affection, and now she was the pursuer. I think it really unsettled her, and it ultimately allowed her to find her voice. In one of the season's more poignant moments, Pam enters her work into an art show. Roy comes and is barely able to mask his disinterest, while Michael doesn't arrive until the very end and is overjoyed when he realizes she's drawn a portrait of the Dunder Mifflin building. Nobody else from the office besides Oscar shows up, not even Jim. The rest of the episode, Business School, is devoted to Michael delivering a disastrous speech at Ryan's Business School and the office battling a loose bat. Lee Eisenberg. That episode is kind of a perfect encapsulation of the themes of the show. Pam feels ignored by Roy. He doesn't get her. You have Michael and Ryan at the school, where we have Michael making an ass of himself, but at the end the characters come together. Michael's there to support Pam. He goes to see her art show, but then he sees that she drew a picture of the building. To Pam, I think it was probably just something to draw. But to him, he's like, You drew our building. There's my car right there. How much is it? All these different agendas come together, and it's so sweet. Gene Stupnitsky. I actually got choked up when I first saw it. When he shows up at the art thing, it's so great. Rain Wilson. It's truly touching. I think that Michael is such a child, and this is when his childlike enthusiasm works, because he's like, wow, you did that? It looks so real. And he's so touched by it in this open-hearted way, and that affects Pam. It's where you see one of the great sides of Michael. Lee Eisenberg Something I didn't appreciate at the time is how well the show mixed melancholy and joy in the same space. It's hard to do, but when it works, it's very special. 
I mean, in that same episode, there's a bat in the office, and Dwight thinks Jim is a vampire. Gene Stupnitsky. We put an amazing line in that one about Dwight shooting a werewolf, but by the time he got to it, it had turned into his neighbor's dog. What a dark joke. The love triangle of Jim, Pam, and Karen wasn't the only romance in the office that season. Dwight and Angela were keeping their relationship on the down low, while Jan was finally willing to debase herself by publicly dating Michael. Lee Eisenberg Melora was so funny as a straight woman who Michael basically ruins. He takes her down a bit. John Krasinski Melora was so good on our show. She was really our secret weapon, because I think it's hard to play the straight character in a show like that. She played the severe girlfriend so well and ended up being a great comedy duo with Steve. Steve found her very funny, and I think that had she not been so hardcore, it wouldn't have been nearly as funny. Her character had so much ambition and so much power in her, which was the exact opposite of Steve. It was almost like an S&M relationship, like he loved being tortured by her or something. Lee Eisenberg When Melora first came on the show, she hadn't done a ton of comedy. I felt like she was a little bit anxious because everyone had come from these improv backgrounds. The comedy was that she's straight, and then Michael, she's the opposite. And then the comedy started drifting more toward her, where she actually got jokes rather than being the straight person and being the reaction shot. Her character started to develop. She really embraced it. Rain Wilson I love how Jan went from the perfect type of corporate straight person in season one to become more and more warped as we found out more information about her. Melora Harden I remember in season three when Greg Daniels came up to me and started talking about Abbott and Costello. He said, Costello was the funny one, but they paid Abbott more. That's because it was much harder to find a good straight man to set up the jokes than it was to find the silly guy that was going to be able to land the jokes and do the silly, funny bits. I was like, really? That's so interesting. He's like, I'm just letting you know that. I just thought that was really cute and sweet. He was basically saying that I was very valuable to the comedy of the show. But Jan unraveled as the season went on, and Michael eventually dumped her though she won him back by getting breast implants. Melora Harden. We were at the upfronts one year, and we were on the sideline about to go on, and we were watching another cast out there on stage. I remember turning to Greg and going, you know what I think is interesting? He's like, what? I said, it's interesting that none of the women on our show seem to have fake boobs, and that when you look at all the other casts, there's like that woman. She's definitely got fake boobs. She's definitely got fake boobs. And she's got fake boobs. I'm pretty sure that gave him the idea. Carrie Bennett. Those were her real boobs in there. And we created this whole crazy super bra. These are like ancient costumer secrets, and I don't know if I can fully reveal them, but basically that bra could stand on its own. Her ladies were just sitting on top of it, basically. Melora Harden. I called them my strap-on boobs. Jenna Fisher. You start at the beginning thinking Jan is the one-together person. Then look what happens to her. Nothing is what it seems on this show. 
Throughout the entire season, Pam deals with one indignity after another until she has her epiphany after walking on the hot coals during beach games and finally tells Jim how she feels about him in front of everyone, including Karen. At the same time, a job opens up at Dunder Mifflin's corporate office in New York because Jan is about to be fired over her erratic behavior. Michael, Jim, and Karen all apply for it, setting up the season three finale, The Job. David Rogers, editor. When we saw the New York footage, we were all like, wow, Jim and Karen look really good together. Why is he leaving Karen? Paul Lieberstein said, the heart wants, it's just love. He loves Pam. Near the end, Jim seems to be on the verge of a job offer from David Wallace. But he sees a note that Pam left in his bag, along with the yogurt lid gold medal from Office Olympics. You don't see him decline the job, but you do see him drive back to Scranton and walk into the conference room while Pam is being interviewed by the documentarian. He asks her if she's free for dinner that night. Okay, then, he says, as Pam beams with shock and euphoria. It's a date. Melora Harden. It's so sad and happy in a weird way. This is such a mixed moment to watch Jim on the precipice of being his biggest, best self and taking that step down to staying where he's safe and comfortable and finally, in a way, addressing this relationship that is so sweet and right. Jenna Fisher. It's so cool. On the one hand, he's taking a huge risk personally, but he's still going to be held back professionally. Ken Quapis. This was a transcendent moment. It was hard for me to sit there without crying. I was crying. Midway through the season, the office beat out Desperate Housewives, Entourage, Ugly Betty, and Weeds to win outstanding performance by an ensemble in a comedy series at the Screen Actors Guild Awards. Melora Harden. When we won the Emmy, Greg took that home. But with the SAG, we all got one. They're super, super, super heavy. They're bronze, and they've got a giant marble base. I carried that little sucker around all night, and I woke up the next morning, and my bicep was so sore that I could barely lift my arm from carrying that around all night long. That was what it took for me to believe that we were a hit. It was my sore bicep. I needed physical proof. Physical proof. 